Welcome to the MedTech Talk Podcast. This is your host, Jeff Pardo, and today is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Nolan Williams, Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University. Nolan is triple board certified in general neurology, general psychiatry, and behavioral neurology and neuropsychiatry. And this training has given him unique insight into the mental health crisis that we are facing in today's society. His work has also resulted in an FDA clearance for the world's first non-invasive, rapid-acting neuromodulation approach for treatment-resistant depression, which we're going to explore in today's episode. Nolan, it's my pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, I appreciate uh, the opportunity to chat. Well, great. Well, as you, as uh, I think the listeners know, I always like to start with kind of the the, the history, the backstory of our guests, and and kind of how they got where they are today, and develop their interest and in, in specialization. And uh, what I'd love to hear is just you know a little bit more about how you developed an interest in medicine and psychiatry, and then you know specifically your areas of specialization uh, today. Absolutely. Thanks for for um, for asking. And so, you know, I uh, I was interested in the brain since high school. Um, you know, took uh, my first kind of psychology class, and in high school got to college. And um, you know, every summer for um, for the four years of um, of college and and after, I was um, working in a basic neuroscience lab doing. Um, you know, dissections of, of uh, mice uh, brains and, you know, trying to understand um, how, uh, you know, modulating different um, receptor systems would change, um, in this case, like your uh, capacity to detox a mouse from alcohol, um, what ended up being experimentally induced alcohol addiction uh, for that mouse. And so, you know, um, it was really interested in the brain, got to medical school, and, um, you know, for a while kind of got lost in, in medical school and didn't, didn't really know what made sense for me. Um, you know, I was, I was really interested in the brain. I, I, you know, I did my kind of neurology and psychiatry and neurosurgery and neuroradiology rotations, and then, uh, and then kind of fell in love with this area of brain stimulation. And so that was really the 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 thing that really got me, you know, and and um, was kind of my my uh, biggest interest back then. But back in two thousand and you know four two thousand to two thousand and eight, this was a very obscure area of medicine. There weren't very many people in it. Um, it was very unclear how that was going to all play out. And so I had, and then I, you know, where is my role in it? You know, so I really thought a lot about: Do I want to be do I want to do invasive neuromodulation to be on the neurosurgery side and put these things in, but, and, and loved the actual, you know, brain surgery part of it. But, you know, as you know, um, neurosurgeons, um, you know, in, in training do a lot more spine surgery and brain surgery, you know, and then I liked the thinking of the neurologist, um, but I liked the topic area of kind of psychiatric illness and, uh, and came to this conclusion that, you know, I wanted to do brain stimulation and do, you know, develop brain stimulation devices. And I wanted to do that, you know, as somebody who understood the brain and understood the mind. And so, you know, made this decision that first that I was going to do brain stimulation. And then secondly, that I was going to do this combined 
neurology and psychiatry residency, um, a lot of my friends were like, uh, you know, what are you doing with this? Why are you doing this? And it was, it was an unusual choice. Um, you know, at that, at that point in my life, there were only about a hundred people that had done, you know, combined neurology, psychiatry training in the U S. So it was a, it's a pretty small group of people. Um, but I convinced myself this was the path forward and then went into, um, a long residency, so six years of two residencies, um, you know, so I had to do internal medicine and do a bunch of, you know, do neurology and then psychiatry and back and forth. And I, um, you know, I kind of pre-negotiated a curriculum, you know, while I was interviewing around being able to be exposed, kind of maximally exposed to all the different brain stimulation modalities. And it gave me an opportunity to really kind of see a particular vantage point of the problem um, within, you know, psychiatric emergencies that, um, you know, from that vantage point, I don't think people were seeing it the same way that were kind of, um, you know, went through more standard psychiatric training. Right. And so as a neurology resident, um, it was right when, uh, TPA was kind of fully utilized for strokes and people were starting to do stinning in the brain, and we're starting to do intraarterial TPA and, and using this, you know, this Mercy device and pulling clots out of the brain. And, um, you know, in the kind of decade or two before that, the idea for treating stroke was, um, you know, as one of my neurology mentors would say, diagnose and adios, right? This idea that neurologist jobs were to say, yeah, this is a, this is a stroke. And then actually internal medicine took care of these folks. And, and that really transitioned from there to what people are calling interventional neurology today, where the neurologists themselves or neurosurgeons or neuroradiologists can actually do a whole lot of procedures to really acutely change the outcome and save lives and save, you know, reduce disability from, you know, major strokes. Um, and I was a witness to all that when I was a neurology trainee. And so, you know, I would... I'd go and do my neurology rotations where people would show up in emergencies and we'd do a lot of procedures and get people out of that that situation. Then I'd go over to psychiatry. In psychiatry, we were we were kind of, you know, it wasn't the adios part, but it was more like diagnose and admit and put on a psychiatric hold, you know, but the same basic idea that, you know, we were bringing people in and there wasn't really a scalable um, treatment for that for any of these problems, right? In the sense of you know, we didn't have anything that could kind of rapidly intervene on folks. And um, electroconvulsive therapy or electroshock therapy, which has been around for 100 years, is out there, but most people don't end up doing it. And then you're talking about really not much in the way of, you know, scalable kind of within high, you know, hospitalization sort of approaches. And it really just kind of struck me that um, that, that wasn't there, but that that was not a permanent um, situation. And just like in neurology where, you know, I was witnessing a transformation, um, of, of using interventions to, to treat acute emergencies. Um, I, I had this intuition that, you know, in psychiatry, we could do a similar sort of thing, right. Where we could really transition the inpatient stay into being something that was procedural and it was something that we, you know, you could intervene quickly. And so, left out of residency with those with those insights and came out to Stanford as an instructor in 2014 and kind of immediately started, you know, working on, you know, how do I, you know, get the funding and how do I get the infrastructure to um 
to get to those next steps. And, um, you know, um, it was not a, it was not a set of ideas that were, uh, were particularly, um, that, that were, people were immediately drawn to or kind of, um, was immediately accepted, which I guess, you know, many good ideas aren't, uh, you know, kind of obvious in that way from the get-go. Mm-hmm. had to do some work to kind of get people on board with it. But, um, you know, that's, that's kind of, that's kind of what, what got me to the point where we started working on this technology that we developed, which, you know, we termed um, SANE or Stanford Accelerated Intelligent Neuromodulation Therapy, this rapid acting stimulation approach to try to um, use rapid acting neurostimulation to treat, in this case, you know, as a first beachhead kind of uh, market idea, um, you know, suicidal depression on the inpatient unit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and I want to really dive into that. But maybe before we get there, what kind of interests me in what you just said is that it, at least in the stroke side of things, you know, there was a physical kind of obstruction, right, of the artery, which was, you know, which was being addressed with new technology. Yep. And in the case of more acute uh, psychiatric illness, it, you know, it strikes me you can't necessarily pinpoint like a clot that's causing that, right? It's it's a much more complex state of affairs, so it would seem to the layperson like me. And I'm I'm wondering if if your just your background in neurology and psychiatry really gave you kind of that different understanding, different perspective on what might be happening to that patient in in crisis. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, so you know, working with epilepsy patients, you know, you see patients who, you know, maybe cognition is normal, they're talking to you, they're fine, and then all of a sudden they have a seizure and they have a, you know, uh, a change and effectively abnormality in their behavior that's the result of changes in the electrical signaling in the brain, right? And that's really what, you know, a seizure is, is it's a change in the, dire- you know, kind of the direction and the nature of an electrical um activity within, you know, in the case of more focal seizures, a certain brain anatomy, in the case of a generalized seizure, the whole brain, right? Um, and so, you know, I, I take care of folks like that over and over again, you know, and there's like processes, you know, in the inpatient unit epilepsy monitoring units where you can monitor that stuff and you can actually pinpoint the electrical abnormalities. And, um, you know, and we we have now um, you know, multiple different data streams, you know, coming out through the lab on differences in depressed individuals' electrical signaling. So actually, we published a paper in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science a couple of months ago where we were able to demonstrate that um, that folks with uh, normal mood, their control region of the brain or the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, this area that kind of is... is um, is a perceived control area that's able to kind of clamp down on conflict um, is temporally in front of, and, and one would assume potentially causally um, affecting the cingulate cortex, which is involved in sadness. And um, in depressed individuals, the the direction flips, right? That cingulate cortex uh, is temporally in front of the dorsolateral, but not in everybody in about 70% of depressed individuals and what's really interesting is, is that um, it's only in those folks that have this um, elect- essentially electrical abnormality, uh, electrical di- directional abnormality 
that um, our rapid acting stimulation approach works. And when it um, when it works, it flips the direction back the right way, this, so that the dorsolateral is first. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty cool. It's not a it's not a as you point out, it's not a clot in a vessel, but it's more analogous to an electrical abnormality in a seizure patient, right? And you know we have lots of there's there's all sorts of invasive devices as you're aware of neuropace. You know there's a um, an approval for um, for a deep brain stimulation device into the thalamus. And the idea there is that you can change the nature of these electrical abnormalities in the case of epilepsy. And we think that, you know, it's not the same exact electrical abnormality, but it's it's a similar enough sort of idea of, um, you know, abnormal electrical signaling um, that you can do that in depression. You can you can pick it up um, with a, with an MRI scan, the same MRI scan we use for for our targeting purposes, for for kind of spatial targeting for stimulation, and we can actually use it as a diagnostic as well and a predictive biomarker for treatment effects. And so, you know, that's that's what I think is really exciting, and um, and uh, where I think things are going to change within psychiatry is we're, we've hit a precipice um, over the last couple of years where I think we're going to be able to use biological measurements to um, to change um, psychiatric practice, and with that, you know, kind of transform the uh, the landscape um, from something that's largely like a behavioral characterization using drugs that um, that have a low number. I'm sorry, a high number needed to treat. Uh, kind of a low percentage of people get well with an individual drug, and we don't know who's going to get well. To um, you know, to to transition from that to a, uh, you know, an approach where, you know, it may be much more personalized um, to that individual's particular problem. Yeah, no, that's, that's fascinating. And, and is this something that, do, do we know enough today to know whether this is something that people are born with they, or are sort of very susceptible to, or is there some sort of triggering event that happens in the course of one's life that results in kind of this flip of the electrical signaling, yeah. And so the the flip, we we have not um, we have not done the work yet to try to to look at that in pre symptomatic people. But it's a great it's a great question and one that we're we're going after now. The the um, there's a different finding that that I'm um, a co author of a paper that's kind of making its way through nature right now um, with one of my um, collaborators, Connor Liston, where he's been able to show that the spatial extent of that cingulate cortex, that area that I was talking about earlier, just how how much of you know what proportion of it um, takes up the kind of brain volume compared to other the rest of the brain, right? And so. And normal healthy controls, it you know it takes X uh, amount of the total brain brain volume in in pre-symptomatic. So in depressed individuals, like cancer, it's not this isn't cancer, but it, it you know it's a similar sort of idea. Like like cancer, it seems to invade into other network areas, so it actually will take the real estate over of other network areas, um, and so the, the total you know, proportional volume of that cingulate and a depressed individual ends up being two to three times that of uh, normal healthy control. And what's really interesting about that, so 
So Connor's group saw that in depressed individuals, and then went back and said, okay, well, there's this ABCD database. So um, kids um, that that come in and they get scanned and they get scanned multiple times through their life, you know, and you can ask the question of, you know, in the people that went on to get depression, what did their brain look like before they got depressed, right? Um, and what's interesting is you see this sort of encroachment of this of the singular part of the salience network into surrounding areas before that kid ever ends up getting mm. um, clinically depressed or symptomatically depressed, right? And so it's really interesting, right? Like this idea that we may be able to use neuroimaging to determine if folks end up being um you know at risk and you know it may justify earlier intervention with more you yeah. know more significant sorts of treatments and so um that's very that's kind of very new information right this idea that that you could do something like that and so we're you know i think we're pretty we're pretty bullish on the idea of um of brain imaging um as being a, a, a really um important central part of, of kind of what I like to refer to as psychiatry 3.0 or this transition out of, you know, 2.0, this kind of drug focused sort of specialty into brain circuits, right? And really what psychiatry 3.0 is, and we're entering into that era is it's a, it's an era of, of really conceptualizing uh, what we classically think of as mental illness into these brain circuit abnormalities, but also other things like Parkinson's is a brain circuit abnormality. Tourette is a brain circuit abnormality. And so, you know, it's particularly interesting to me as a psychiatrist and a neurologist that we can come up with some you know, common language for the first time in the history of those disciplines um, to start yeah. think, talking the same language around these brain abnormalities that lead to, to major disabling brain diseases. Yeah. It seems like a, I mean, a pretty dramatic evolution of thought and, and said, again, coming very much from the lay uh, perspective, but, you know, where, you know, these Ill mental illnesses may have thought at one point to be the result of some trauma or some sort of external event. And then, you know, maybe the evolution to it being more of a chemical imbalance to this, where it seems like actually it's the electrical system that is you know, something's uh, sort of um, gone sort of haywire with the electrical signaling. I'm probably capturing it in a very crude way, but but is that, you know, is is that sort of kind of how it's evolved or is it, mm -hmm. is it much more complex than that? Well, I think that's, I think you're totally spot on. It's this, you know, this idea, you know, what I would refer to as psychiatry 1.0, this idea of thinking about it as a content problem. You know, and that's really where, like, you know, this idea of, you know, your your relationships and your your um, you know, your environment and the the cognitions and thoughts that you have around that are really what's driving all of it, right? And then, you know, the kind of psychiatry two point started with with drugs, right? Where like, you know, the first set of antipsychotic drugs that led to like a lot of of the um, you know, psychiatric asylums being, um, you know, transitioned and a lot of the patients in psychiatric asylums being transitioned out. Once, you know, you have a drug for schizophrenia, now all of a sudden somebody who is chronically mentally ill now is clearing up and, and much more normal in their cognitions. And that was kind of a transition point where, where people 
who thought it was all content were, were saying, well, gosh, you know, that can't be the case because we have these drugs that can really, you know, change it. And then every, and then it became, it's all about what you refer, you know, referred to a second era, this idea of this chemical imbalance, which doesn't fully take into account what's going on either, but, but was a kind of a conceptual change for psychiatry. And then as we get into psychiatry 3.0, the circuit idea, what's cool and useful about it is it, it takes into account the other two eras, right? This idea that, yeah, there are life events that trigger off these um, these symptoms, right? That in, at least in some individuals, um, you know, the life event itself may trigger them to have a depressive episode. You know, you, you can see this with, you know, PTSD is a great example of that where it really is that, that exposure um, to that life event that really triggers the diagnosis. Um, but that, that alone isn't the, you know, that, that kind of activates that circuit, but the circuit seems to have to be, you know, organized in a, in in a more abnormal way to begin with. And that that in part can be the chemistry of the brain, you know, as, as these drugs do do something, especially things like antipsychotics for schizophrenia, but that, um, you can also intervene at the level of circuits, right? And so the idea that you can use neurostimulation to change the nature of brain circuit, that may be causing for endogenous chemicals to change in the brain, but you're not putting any chemistry into the brain, mm. right? You're not, you're not exogenously introducing any new chemicals into the brain. So it, it kind of challenges this idea of this kind of chemical imbalance idea that it's simply an issue of putting in exogenous chemistry to change it. It also challenges the idea that, you know, content changes are really what drive improvements in psychiatric problems from the, you know, I have to talk through this problem in order to get better with it, you know, and rather that, you know, you can use focal neuromodulation to change psychiatric, psychiatric symptoms. And with that, you actually do change the content. You know, you, we've had a number of patients who've gotten better and they go back to their old cognitive behavioral therapy workbooks and they say well gosh doc for the first time ever i'm able to understand all this stuff and do these workbooks mm. you know or um this idea that neurostimulation is changing neurotransmitter signaling in the brain it certainly seems to do that right there are, you know a, a convergence of studies um showing that that you're actually releasing you know endogenous um neurochemistry as you stimulate and so I, I think that's what's really beautiful about this I, this kind of circuit era we're about to get into. I think it's it's comprehensive. It covers all these other ideas, but then it also offers the ability to really provide dramatic change at the circuit level, which seems to be um, something that can happen quickly from what we've seen. And uh, robustly producing really, you know, dramatic clinical improvements, and um, and really kind of flies in the face of some of these older ideas, and uh, and I think is very useful to the patient, right? That um, just like with neurological illness, you know, this idea there's a focal abnormality in the brain driving it. We can make a similar argument that um, that really, you know, the the problem if it's responsive to neurostimulate focal neurostimulation has to be a brain-based problem with a focal abnormality in, in the brain and brain function, right? And that's 
that's very different than it's, you know, my personal fault as a person or my chemistry or whatever, which is harder to think about, harder to deal with, right? It's this idea that it's actually a brain problem, just like a stroke or a seizure, and we can do some procedures to really get the person better. And I think that's transformative for the field. Yeah. And and one other thing I wanted to kind of explore is sort of context laying um for for the rest of what we're going to discuss is so what why have we seen such an explosion of of mental health issues in our society have these sort of uh, electrical abnormalities always been you know there and and uh, or is there something that in our society today which is causing this to be even more prevalent and I'm curious what whether you have some theories as to why why we see so much, you know, depression, so much anxiety, so much, uh, you know, uh, attention deficit disorder. Why are these things so much greater uh, in today's society? Or, or is that really they're not greater? That we've just, you know, people talk about them more freely. They're more diagnosed, etc. Yeah, I think it's. I mean, I think it's both, right? I think that that you know, there's probably some bit of of increased you know, willingness, particularly in like Gen Z, willingness to talk about these issues and it being not stigmatized. And I think that's one aspect of it is the stigma is going down as we're going forward in the future and things are look less and less like it's that person's fault, more and more like it's it's the biology. And and you can see that reflected in the number of psychiatry has actually become quite a, so this idea that there's a lot of interest now because people are seeing you know, seeing this in a different lens, you know, um, and it's not as, as taboo. I think that, um, I think that that's a piece of it, but I think that there's a, you know, probably a much bigger piece that ends up being around this, um, this issue of, of what it means to, you know, to live in 2023, you know, um, you know, social media and, and that whole side of things, um, you know, it's, it's certainly been problematic to youth. Um, there's, you know, there's just kind of differences in, in perception, um, you know, of, of how people are really doing and how they're portraying themselves in these social media sites and all that sort of thing that can drive particularly the youth into feeling like, you know, the world is a certain way that it really isn't, you know, and I think that's certainly a piece that's driving it. I think there's a lot more pressure and competitiveness um, now than ever before. And, and we know that, you know, there's a certain part of this ends up being, you know, preloaded risk, you know, um, and then there's part of it that, like I said earlier, is environmental. And if, you know, you transit people through enough stress over time, then that environmental risk um, goes up. And so I think that, um, I think it's that, that combination of things. We're not going to be able to totally answer this question until we fully characterize what these problems are in a, in a deep way, right? Like we have a, an understanding of what they are phenomenologically, you know, like we can recognize them clinically within a range of descriptions, but that's not the same as understanding what the electrical abnormality is, you know, and I described some interesting studies we've been doing and are, you know, doing with our collaborators, but in order to get to that next level, we have to be able to scale something like that and really turn it into a diagnostic, you know, and be able to, you know, and we'll, I'm sure we'll get into this later, but, you know, really have r- real reasons to get biology uh, on at scale with people, right, where we can actually get 
a million brain scans on depressed individuals and be able to, with like high levels of certainty, say this is what this is. This is this this person's depressed or not. We can we can read that off of a brain scan, and um, and I think we're headed. You know, as a field, we're headed towards that. And there's a lot of you know, I, you know, my lab, and then ultimately, and we'll talk about it later. I'm sure you know Magnus Medical, the company that's put on my lab to commercialize some of our rapid acting stimulation approaches. You know, this idea that you know you can get wrapped into a treatment, you can get a brain scan that could have many, many different purposes for understanding the circuitry of that individual. And with that, really building out a deep understanding of what um, what their problem is at the brain level. And if we can do that at scale, then you, you're not just talking about one treatment that can treat one problem, but you're talking about a transformation of the field because we'd have the ability to, to really um, implement the sort of diagnostics that need to be in place to answer that question. Because if you don't know what the problem is and you don't have kind of universal screening on that problem, um, then you don't know where it's coming from and you don't know why the numbers are going up, you know? And and that's, that. to your point, it's like super important. And if they keep going up more and more like this, I mean, we're going to be in a really big bind as a, as a, as a species, as a, as a mm-hmm. you know, as a culture in the U.S., and um, and it's looking like that. There was a statistic that came out um, a couple of weeks ago where one out of two humans is going to have some sort of um, psychiatric diagnosis at some point in their lifetime. Mm-hmm. That includes dementia and other things. But, you know, that's a it's a pretty large number of people. You know, it's larger than really anything else. Um, and, uh, you know, if that's the case, we have to have treatments that are really going to take care of that. So... Thanks for joining me on MedTech Talk. If you enjoy the conversation or if you have guest ideas for me, please rate the podcast at Apple Podcasts and leave your guest or topic idea in the review. I'd love to hear from you. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, sort of with, I think, how uh, I widely, I guess, recognized at least uh, um, uh, the the mental health crisis is I think there it seems to me there's been a wave of new approaches to it or maybe they're not new but things that are being used today and that you know could be ketamine uh, TMS uh, psilocybins you know newer newer drugs you mentioned ECT and I'm wondering how you see maybe you could give us like a short primer on 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 the the different approaches that are being utilized and will we see some sort of segmentation you know by condition or uh, severity of condition in terms of where these different approaches are used absolutely so yeah it's a great great question um so we um you know we've been looking at all of this stuff you know in the lab um you know I've been interested in in this kind of whole area and you really named off the all the procedures and and um, and drugs that kind of fall within this area of subspecialization, which we you know coined the term of interventional psychiatry about a decade ago, and it's really using neurostimulation approaches and rapid acting drugs to to treat you know severe mental illness, and particularly these kind of more emergent cases. And um, yeah, it's a great it's a it's kind of a great menu of of options for people. You know, I think that. Um, you know, all of those things are potential treatments um, 
for non-emergency cases. Um, psilocybin, for instance, is an in MDMA. The MAPS just put in a new drug application this morning to FDA. Um, so MDMA for PTSD, psilocybin for depression. These are things that are still experimental or, or, and aren't approved by the FDA. Ketamine um, is not approved by the FDA for depression, but is used off-label. And then S-ketamine um, was approved, um, and Janssen developed that drug. And, and then, um, you know, as you say, conventional TMS has been around since the, the um, mid-90s and approved since the mid uh, late 2000s. ECT has been around for 100 years. And so we can start with ECT. ECT is a, a treatment that's um, heavily underutilized in the United States. Um, it's um, it's only utilized by about 1.5% of the Medicare Medicaid eligible individuals that could get it in, in, in inpatient units and psychiatric emergencies. And the reason for that is because only about 10% of psych hospitals have it because it's very hard to do. You have to have an anesthesiologist, you have to have a psychiatrist that's willing to do it. You have to do it in a PACU or, you know, kind of a, a monitored bed setting. Um, and um, and you have to get people on board with the idea that they're going to they're gonna run the risk of um, autobiographical memory issues, right? Where people get stimulated and then they, they can't remember you know, what they ate for breakfast yesterday. They can't remember it was their daughter's birthday yesterday. You know, they can't remember who drove them into the hospital to get ECT. Um, and, and, you know, 80 plus percent of people will relapse from ECT at six months. So that means that you have to keep giving it ongoing. Uh, and that seems to be kind of the nature of the illness to kind of keep redosing people. And, um, and so it's something that kind of leaves people in a little bit of a, a fog. Um, it's life-saving right? It's totally life-saving. And in certain conditions, psychotic depression, malignant catatonia, you know, uh, NMS, there, you know, there's basically nothing else that can really treat those problems. And so ECT can literally save people's lives. They would, you know, in some of those conditions like neuroleptic malignant syndrome and, and malignant catatonia, you can actually die mm. uh, without ECT, right? Uh, um, and so, um, you know, so a very important intervention, but one that that people don't, um, you know, people generally don't want to take, you know, take the risk on at scale, and it really hasn't scaled in 30 years. Hemingway got ECT, um, and uh, and ultimately ended up killing himself, and um, and it was it was because of the cognition issues, um, mm -hmm. you know, and so um, it's one of these things that uh, is very valuable and important but really reserved for kind of the hardest to treat cases and kind of life-threatening cases and not something that kind of the standard run-of-the-mill depression patient gets in. And, and also it takes, you know, an average of 12, sometimes up to, you know, 14, 16, 18 treatments um, to get people better. And you mm -hmm. can only do three a week. So it's not really a rapid acting treatment. Conventional TMS has been around, like I said, as an experimental treatment since the, the mid-90s. My mentor, Mark George, who was at NIH and then came back to Charleston, um, was um, kind of spearheaded a lot of the efforts to get that approved. And, um, you know, it's a uh, it's also not a rapid-acting treatment. Um, you know, and get people well in kind of six-plus weeks. You know, the data really suggests you got to keep treating people out until like 15 weeks to really kind of plateau the effect at least and with conventional kind of treatment schedules and uh 
you know, about a third of people will remit, a third of people will respond, a third of people will have not, no change in lower treatment resistance levels. When you get into the higher tre treatment resistance levels, you're talking about, you know, remission rates in the teens, you know. Um, we could talk about why that is. Um, but when you think about TMS, you want to think about the protocol, so both the targeting and the stimulation approach, and not the device itself, the TMS so when I talk about conventional TMS, really what I'm talking about is a conventional TMS protocol, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, in that protocol, you know, the number needed to treat is like six or eight based off of the trials. And so, you know, it's it's a tougher thing to implement. People have to take off of work to, to do it. And you have to basically tell your boss you're depressed, which is a hard conversation to have, um, as you can imagine. Um, and it's it's a big time commitment because of how protracted it is. Ketamine is, uh, I like to refer to a single dose of, of IV ketamine as a depression vacation. So um, ketamine lasts about seven to 10 days when you're giving it once. If you give it in an ECT-like schedule, it can last longer, but you kind of lose the rapid acting, quote unquote, rapid acting treatment effect if you're having to give ketamine over weeks, right? Um, it's rapid in that sense, but if you have to give it over weeks to have a rapid durable effect, you have to, you know, kind of give it, you know, many, many times, just like ECT over weeks. Um, it's a very interesting drug. Um, you know, there's a lot of interest in in what it can do. It, it produces about a remission in about a third of people. Um, it's, um, you know, it's gotten a lot of, it, you know, and as you give more dose, you can, you can kind of, crank that that number up. Um, there's been very little interest in in trying to scale ketamine itself because of the patent issues. Nobody's really taken that on. Um, S-ketamine uh, is, is interesting. It's very different in its timeline with intranasal S-ketamine. Yeah, and so, um, so essentially, um, you know, with S-ketamine, it, it works over the course of weeks. And uh, and can't really be utilized as a inpatient rapid acting approach. It's really that's really more of an outpatient sort of approach. And then you know um, psilocybin and and the classic psychedelic drugs that are being developed for for treatment are interesting. They're also in the kind of third of people remission sort of numbers. There's some recent data that came out that it looks higher than that if you give multiple doses. Um, you know the the the, it's a very interesting space. You know, I think there's a lot of attention there. You know, there's companies like Compass that are developing this out. The problem with implementing that as a psychiatric emergency treatment is that um, you can have drug-drug um, interactions with all the major antidepressants. And so you have to kind of get people off of anti conventional antidepressants to be able to, um, to do, you know, to give people psilocybin because of the risk of serotonin syndrome. And so it's it's really going to probably be reserved for more subacute to kind of outpatient sort of um, interventions. Um, you know, it's 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 very interesting because in theory it could be very cheap to administer this and um, and um, you know potentially scalable. But the 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 issue there is people are in these like you know ten hour eight hour sort of trips as they call them, where people have altered state of consciousness and they have to be kind of watched. So it's it's hard to understand how how you scale um, you know one of these classic psychedelics because of the you know extensive amount of time where monitoring has to happen um, you know and so that's going to be it's going to be interesting to see how that gets done 
Um, but people do seem to to do well with it. Um, you know, there are you know a number of side effects, psychological side effects that happen, but there's not in the case of psilocybin, for instance, not really any kind of medical risk. So you know, significant kind of medical risk that people worry about. Um, and um, you know, I think over the next three, four years, you could see something like that start. You know, uh, go in for a new drug application to FDA. So I think that's a great backdrop then to you know the role of uh, the the TMS that you've really uh, developed and maybe you know I think you did this a bit but explain the difference between what you're doing and doing with Saint um, and what Magnus is doing and how that differs from traditional TMS and then and then let's talk about kind of also I think an important difference in what you're doing is your initial target is that inpatient part of the hospital as opposed to where traditional TMS is being used today, which is uh, more on the outpatient uh, and outside the hospital setting. So yeah, set that up for us. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, I kind of, as you said, alluded to this throughout this discussion that there's this, you know, space within psychiatry where, you know, there's really not kind of a scalable treatment for emergencies. It's, it's, psychiatry is interesting in the sense that unlike the rest of medicine, where as you escalate acuity of care, you escalate the number of tests and treatments. If I'm having chest pain in my primary doctor, primary care doctor's office, um, you know, they may have an EKG machine. They may be able to check my pulse. They may be able to give me an aspirin, but it's not until I get into the ER that I'm going to really get any kind of test, maybe a CT angio. And it's not until I get into the cath lab that I'm really going to be able to, um, you know, get a real handle on what's going on and have a, you know, a really, you know, aggressive, inappropriate medical intervention for that problem. In psychiatry, there's not, you know, it's really the opposite. As you escalate acuity with current care, you lose the number of um, treatment options and there are no tests. And so that's, that's the basic idea. And so with, with say, what we called say this, this kind of rapid acting neurostimulation approach that we used a TMS device initially to apply it's um it's a particular personalized medicine targeting approach and a particular stimulation approach. So just like with a scalpel, I can do a, a good version of a surgery, a bad version of a surgery. I can do one surgery or another surgery. A scalpel can do a lot of different things. A TMS system is, is similar, right? Or any neurostimulation system is similar where, you know, what I do with that system is in and of itself the treatment and that the system itself is more like um, a piece of equipment that allows you to do a whole host of treatments. Mm-hmm. And so conventional TMS is was really designed around trying to be incredibly safe, right? And so there was a overabundance of caution and that was coupled with, a, with an inability in the mid-90s to personalize it, right? There was really no way of thinking about how you'd get individualized scans on anybody and be able to personalize a treatment course. And so they were using kind of one-size-fits-all sort of targeting approaches, and then they were coupling that with a stimulation approach, which was not really um, aligned with, with mammalian neurobiology in the sense of, um, you know, mimicking you know, normal natural biological signals, but rather using a parametrically um, derived stimulation approach that was kind of slow and, um, you know, could be applied over a, a protracted period of time. 
And what we did is we we kind of re-engineered the, the entire thinking around this. How do we stimulate in a manner that's very, very quick so we can apply this over very short periods of time? And so we figured out a way of how to compress six-week courses into a single day. So we're giving about seven and a half months worth over five days. And then we apply that within a resting state connectivity-derived personalized target. So how do we stimulate within this specific brain target region for that person and then apply a um, significant and um, rapid acting approach? And so we're, we're saying it's different is this idea that we've been able to reorganize the stimulation in, in space and in time. And so we're using personalized uh, connectivity-based targeting metrics, so the ability to target uh, at the individual brain level. And, and so we're able to use MRI-based uh, metrics to determine the best spot in the brain versus using a ruler um, to, to find this uh, consistent skull position. So that's very different. Um, and then we couple that with this idea that we're able to apply um, a, a robust and neurobiologically aligned um, stimulation approach to the brain already kind of utilizes itself, which is this idea of, um, you know, applying memory signals into the brain to tell that brain area to turn on and stay on, and then um, sending it in in kind of, the, kind of the same way the brain learns. And so when we do that, we're able to get people well on an average of 2.6 days. And where that's kind of clinically useful from the standpoint of like, you know, as, as Magnus is taking our, you know, technology out of the lab and then trying to implement it in clinical situations, you know, they're able to basically take this sort of an approach and implement it in these long length of stay patients, right? Um, it's kind of unheard of to take a patient in to the hospital who would normally stay maybe a month because they're so ill and get them turned around in a couple of days and be able to do that. Repeat it, it just changes the entire economics of the entire process, right? All the way down to the ER, where the ER basically has psychiatric patients boarding for sometimes a week at a time, just waiting on one of those beds. And these long length of stay patients, you know, take a month to, to be able to be discharged because of the the nature of that you know, that long length of stay and being able to folks, you know, in the ER, you know, if you've got beds opening up very regularly up to the psych unit well and out, you know, in 48, 72 hours, you know, that's the sort of time frame that now all of a sudden you can transition these units from, from effectively a money losing situation where, you know, they're, they're losing, you know, millions of dollars a year from long length of stay patients to a money, you know, either break even or money even making situation where you've got it so that patients can, um, you know, be treated and get out of the, the uh, inpatient unit into their next spot. They're happy because they're well and they didn't have to stay more than a couple of days. And it, it creates a scenario for the hospitals where they can, you know, treat all the patients that they want to treat, you know? And so I think it's, that part's particularly exciting, you know, this ability to to kind of transition to to a much more active role and getting people, um, you know, better in a short period of time. 
And that's, I mean, among the things I find interesting about this uh, technology and approach is really the problem you're solving for hospitals as well. I mean, you know, obviously the most important thing is what you're doing for these patients, but maybe you can describe a little bit kind of the current state of, uh, you know, state of things with hospitals and these inpatient units and, and just how difficult the situation this is for health systems. Think about it, you know, so you've got, You've got a patient who comes in and they're telling you that they're suicidal and they, they've been thinking about ending their life. And, you know, in many cases, these are patients who told their psychiatrist in an outpatient setting, you know, I want to end my life. And the psychiatrist has to call the cops, bring them to the ER. You know, they're handcuffed and brought into the ER. They're, they're brought into the ER where they're strip searched and put into scrubs and then they're, they're, they're monitored. They're they have a sitter that are watching them in the ER until they get up to the unit, and then the patient's told that there's nothing, there's nothing um, available for them beyond what they had access to outpatient. Really, the kind of quote unquote treatment is the is the locked unit, is the um, inability for them to really have any, you know, any um, decision making around getting out of the hospital. And, and then they're told they have to, in many states, go in front of a judge before they can get discharged. Right, and so you've got a pretty hard situation there and the doctors are on one end being told you've got to cut these length of stays because if you have these long length of stays it costs the hospital all this money and on the other end there's a there's a liability right if they send people out early then you know there's the kind of obvious human bad outcome of of you know you, now this patient has a lot of risk because their risk triples at discharge is the highest lifetime for them is right after they get discharged um, as far as suicide attempts and completed suicides, meaning the person ends their own life. And um, and so these doctors are in this bind, right? The inpatient doctors are in an incredible double bind where they're having to, and there are not really good tests for, for evaluating. There's no biological tests really for evaluating this, you know, that are in practice right now. Is this person at risk? If they keep saying that they want to end their life, then there's a, you know, in many cases, an obligatory requirement to just keep folks in the hospital for sometimes months on end. And then some patients will, um, you know, through through neighbors and other patients in, in the hospital that have been through this before, they'll realize that, you know, they the only way they're going to get out is if they tell the doctor something that for them may not be true, which is that the suicidal thinking has gone away. And then some of those people leave and then in their life, right? And so it's a really hard position for doctors to be in. It's it's not one that um, there's any solution for now beyond what Saint can do, right? If you can take somebody and you can really rapidly turn this whole thing around and get them well in 2.6 days, and, and you've got, in the case of Medicare, a 10-day stay, all of a sudden you've solved both of those problems. The patients that were going to tell you that they were going to, um, that they're not feeling suicidal anymore and then kind of they they still are actually you know now they've got a solution to their problem because no patient really wants to feel like this and leave they just they just want to leave and they don't want to be in that setting necessarily right so if you can give them an out where they can actually stop feeling like this they will jump on it you know and so you give you de-risk the patients that would have left and you significantly reduce the stay length of the patients that would have stayed and it transforms the entire clinical decision making because now what you what you do it makes total sense is 
every single patient that comes in that in, in the case of you know magnus has new te- the first new technology add-on payment for psychiatry so medicare will pay for this these medicare patients come in and you just start treating them immediately right this is the i think one of the safest you know treatments in in all of medicine the safest procedures in all of medicine right this idea that you can just start treating everybody quickly every of course you're going to do it because everybody's going to fe- you know start feeling better every patient's going to want it because their their neighbor or their the you know the, the person they met you know a couple of days ago is now well and able to get out of the hospital and they want that too and now all of a sudden the entire unit is asking for this right and i think that that is where the transformation happens it's just kind of a difference in the hipaa laws when you're talking about inpatient everybody's there together seeing everybody either get better or not you know and so now all of a sudden you're giving people an opportunity to do something on top of the normal milieu the nor- normal repertoire get them well really quickly and get them out of that hospital stay where they're able to get back to their families get back to their lives get back to their jobs and um and, and for the doctors and for the hospital system you know i i think probably significantly de-risk the whole situation while changing the economics of a whole inpatient unit yeah and that to me is really what's you know transformative about this if, if it can be pulled off is that is that you can do that and there's not really anything else that can do it you know ketamine well, a single dose of ketamine can get the person acutely better but like i said it's a depression vacation for a single dose they're going to lose it in seven days and it's actually really a bad idea to give people ketamine once and send them out because they're going to lose it they're going to get you know they're going to get back in that same bad space and now all of a sudden maybe they don't get back into the hospital right so there's nobody using ketamine in this way because you really need something durable that can keep working after they leave you know all of the you know psychedelics are going to have drug drug interactions and you're looking at like 2026 2027 before you start seeing any of that even get through approval you know ect takes um you know months a month plus to work conventional tms takes a month plus to work and it's number needed to treat is like six and so, you know, this is the only thing, and we, you know, we observed nearly 80% remission rates in our RCT at, you know, at some point in that four-week follow-up, you know, and so, you know, we can get most people out of these states and get them back to their family in a couple of days. And it creates, you know, from the standpoint of the, of the hospital and, and kind of the, the, you know, for Magnus, this kind of virtual monopoly situation, right, where they've got you know, from licensing all of our patents out of Stanford, they've really got the only way to, to kind of solve this problem. And it's a big problem. Um, and that's where I think it's, you know, it's, it's really got a lot of potential. Yeah. And maybe to, to wrap up because, you know, uh, uh, what this can do to the inpatient experience is dramatic. And then a patient, these patients of course go out to the world and there is a role for this approach also in the outpatient setting and i wonder if you can just talk about that a little bit and where you see this potentially heading uh, as it extends beyond the inpatient hospital experience absolutely yeah i mean i think about this like dialysis right people come into the um into the hospital to be you know compliant patients that don't have another reason to come to the hospital come into the hospital for kidney failure once and then they um they end up needing to uh <clears throat> they end up needing to go to a dialysis clinic after that and that's what we think we could 
you know, do for, for patients with suicidal depression. They come into the hospital one time, um, they get this, you know, five day treatment, they get well. And, you know, Magnus and Brandon Bensley, one of, uh, one of the folks that was in my lab that, you know, transitioned into the company has now developed a, you know, machine learning based algorithm that can track and trigger retreatment in people. So, you know, with, with a single day of treatment every couple of months, you can keep the person, um, keep a, you know, a quick relapsing patient well and, and keep them out of the hospital ongoing, just like dialysis. And so this idea that, um, you know, chronically we'll be able to get people, um, into these treatment, treatment situations where, they're going to be able to be, um, you know, treated as an outpatient, maintained, and avoid, you know, what would have been uh, 10, 20 years ago, very recurrent psychiatric admissions is really amazing. And I think that that's, that's where the future ultimately is, right, is this, you know, in the kind of 10-year time frame, that this is something that can be employed before the person ever gets so severe they need to go into a psych unit. But in order to do that, you have to kind of prove it in the psych unit. You have to prove it in these high emergency settings when they've already happened. You know, build out you know more of an evidence base, and then scale out to the outpatient as as your your evidence base and the real world you know outcomes prove out what we think is going to happen, which is you can treat people even when they get to these worst case scenarios. And if we can do that, then you know, not only will we um, you know, have the opportunity to transfer, you know, transition the inpatient unit into a, into a, um, interventional unit, but transition outpatient into something that can be procedural at scale as well. And I think that's really the longer promise. Yeah. Well, Nolan, you know, I can think of few things as, as important, uh, as the work you're doing. And, and I mean, Thank I think you, we all know, you know, people in our lives who are affected uh, by this and uh, and just it's, um, you know, pretty astounding the results you guys have generated so far uh, and the thank work you. that you've done. And um, and I just can't thank you enough for coming on today's episode and really walking us through um, uh, not only the technology, but the broader landscape of things available to patients. So thank you. Yeah, thank you, Jeff. And thanks for your interest and, and for kind of highlighting this um this technology and um, yeah, I hope to, to keep talking about it with you and uh, appreciate the time. Great. Right.